you so much. Um, I had a similar uh, experience when I was writing my dissertation. A book came out called The Autobiographical Myth of Robert Lowell by Philip Cooper. I thought it was all over, and then I read it, and it wasn't all over. <laughs> um, never is, really. Um, I want to thank um, uh, Stephen and Philip Coleman, uh, who invited me, who made the arrangements for me, who carried me from room to room, and have made me feel very welcome. Very grateful to you both. Uh, I also want to thank uh, Greg Kosk, Greg Kosk, my writing partner and co-editor of uh, Robert Lowell's memoirs, which we're just uh, completing now, and also thank uh, Risa Axelrod, uh, my writing partner, off and on for my whole career, and the love of my life. Okay, I uh, want to. Uh, Begin by showing some pictures, some photos of Lowell, just to get us into the world of Robert Lowell. Uh, this is his mother, Charlotte Winslow Lowell, uh, 1915, um, probably around the time uh, she's getting married, I think. And correct me if I say anything wrong, because the um, most of the dates of the of the uh, photos are unspecified, and so I'm just guessing at the dates. Uh, really, very nice looking woman. <laughs> Anyone want to say anything more? <laughs> There's a family photo. There's Robert Cal before he was Cal when he was still Bobby. There's Mom, and there's dad and some sort of military naval outfit. They look like a happy family, don't they? <laughs> we all know they were not. <laughs> Photos are deceiving. Now this is a photo that I think is not deceiving. This is uh, Lowell and his first wife, Jean Stafford, in uh, 1937. Um, I don't know what he just said to her or what she's doing, but boy, they look unhappy. That looks pretty much like an unstaged, honest photo. Like, don't get married. <laughs> what I want to say. Here's Lowell in the 1940s, I'm guessing. Uh, correct me if, if you know better. Uh, looks very handsome, I think. Here he is. In a, I don't know why I say in a cardigan. I'm that sort of. Is that a cardigan? No, it's no. Yes. It's a vest. I don't even know what I'm talking about. Uh, he looks uh, introspective and thoughtful, I guess, with the kind of books haphazard behind him. I think this must be around the time of uh, his most serious mental breakdown, which I'll talk about uh, in a moment, uh, in 1954. It's obviously not right at that moment, it's either before or after. Uh, Greg, do you have any ideas when? You don't have well, what No, <laughs> when that was taken. You don't recognize it. Okay. Uh, here he is, I'm guessing wildly here in the late 1950s in a um, you know, posed photo. Here he is in 1962 in Brazil with his uh, best uh, friend, I guess it's fair to say, Elizabeth Bishop. The friendship has now become famous due to uh, Words in Air, edited by uh, 
time traveling side known as Saskia Hamilton. Um, he was down in Brazil visiting her and had a manic attack uh, probably soon after this photo was taken and you know, kissed statues and all sorts of uh, things he wouldn't have done if he was uh, uh, not uh, having an attack. Here he is with Elizabeth Hardwick, wife number two. I'm guessing this is in the 1960s, but I don't really know. They look happy, almost in a kind of impressionist uh, play of light and shade. Here he is again in the 1960s, evidencing a bad habit. Um, looking, well, how does he look? Thoughtful. Not particularly thrilled. <laughs> okay, here I'm going to talk about his involvement in American politics uh, in my talk. Here he is with Eugene McCarthy in 1968. He was, bizarre as it is, one of the chief ad advisors of Eugene McCarthy, sort of the Bannon to uh, McCarthy. Um, <laughs> Uh, they really were very fond of each other and needed each other during that campaign. This is probably taken in the Oregon primary election, which uh, um, McCarthy won, and uh, the high point of his campaign, McCarthy, a poet himself. This is uh, the rival, the opponent, Robert F. Kennedy, uh, who should have been president, only. And here he is, Lowell, with uh, wife number three, Caroline Blackwood, and children in the 1970s. I'm guessing that that's Sheridan over there. Do you think that could be Ivana? They look happy. As opposed to that yeah. really quite scary photo uh, that Greg showed, mm -hmm where Lowell seems almost to be hiding behind Carolyn Blackwood. And here's an undated photo of Lowell with uh, Elizabeth Hardwick. Um, I don't know when this was taken, but if you judge by Lowell's hair, which is my way of dating uh, <laughs> what's going on with him, this is very late. That's his last uh, hairstyle, or lack of hairstyle. Um, I think they both look great, and so that's why it's so odd to me. Um, he remarried in 1972. This looks to me after 1972. Mm -hmm. Maybe in the last year of his life when they uh, reconciled. And um, Frank Finnart told me that the reconciliation was not that successful, that they both seemed sort of numb. But if this photo is from that period, they don't look numb to me at all. They look... Uh, Quite happy, especially One, Dark Times. Robert Lowell was a poet of dark times, to some degree our dark time as well as his own. The American psychiatrist Alan Francis has recently identified a dystopic Trumpian dark age composed of ignorance, incompetence, impulsivity, and pursuit of dictatorial powers. I would add that this dark age has not arisen from the executive branch alone, but also from other government branches and ideological social institutions. It should not have been a surprise, though it was. 
Jane Jacobs predicted it in her brilliant last book, Dark Age Ahead, published in 2004. In speaking of Lowell in dark times, I mean two interrelated sorts of emergency. First, alluding to Men in Dark Times, published by Lowell's close friend Hannah Arendt in 1968, I mean dark times in the public realm. Times of political destabilization, de-democratization, and the threat, if not the actuality, of monstrosity, of concentration camps, atomic warfare, torture, mass death. Arendt, a Jewish refugee from Nazi Germany, rejected the appealing option of withdrawing into private thought in such dark times, writing that with each retreat, an almost demonstrable loss to the world takes place. What is lost is the specific and usually irreplaceable in-between which should have formed between this individual and his fellow men. And by fellow men, she means, definitely means fellow women as well. For Arendt, it is one's duty to enter into the fraught public world, which can only form in the interspaces between men in all their variety. To speak of and to speak to the public world is ultimately the only, sort, only source of light and illumination. In just that spirit, Lowell functioned throughout the mid-20th century as, in Richard Poirier's phrase, our truest historian. Poems like the, such as The Quaker Graveyard in Nantucket, For the Union Dead, Benito Serino play, and Waking Early Sunday Morning speak to the omnipresent inequities and dangers of first of World War II and then of the Cold War. Reflecting on the Nazi death camps, Lowell said, genocide has stunned us. We have a curious dread it will be repeated. I think one of the most uh, poignant uh, political comments ever. Later, just before the Vietnam War <coughs> commenced in earnest, he warned, this has been an age of barbarous manslaughter. Every man belongs to his own nation and to the world. He can only, as things are, belong to the world by belonging to his own nation. Yet the sovereign nations, despite their feverish last-minute existence, are really obsolete. They imperil the lives they were created to protect. Six years later, after the mass murder of about 400 unarmed Vietnamese by American soldiers at My Lai, Lowell lamented, no stumbling on the downward plunge from Hiroshima. In a century, perhaps no one will widen an eye at massacre, and only scattered corpses express a last histrionic concern for death. The second meaning of dark times comes from Lowell's other friend, barely a friend, really more a rival, Theodore Ruthke. In 1964, four years before Arendt published Men in Dark Times, Ruthke published his great poem, In a Dark Time, which begins, In a dark time the eye begins to see, I meet my shadow in the deepening shade. Rutke's poem explored the relationship between depression and cognition, 
in psychic and spiritual space. Lowell, who suffered from a severe bipolar mood disorder throughout his life, knew what Rutke was talking about. Five years before, in 1959, he had published Life Studies, his masterpiece of memory and mood. The most famous poem of that volume, Skunk Hour, employed the metaphor of a dark night, derived in part from St. John of the Cross and in part from Sartre and Camus. I'll read a stanza. One dark night, my two-door Ford climbed the hill's skull. I watched for love cars. Lights turned down. They lay together, hull to hull, where the graveyard shelves on the town. My mind's not right. As a result of such poems, he instantly became famous or notorious as a pioneer of poetry as confession. Where Skunkauer suggested the dark night of psychic and spiritual crisis, Waking in the Blue portrayed wakening in a psychiatric hospital. And later poems returned to the tropes of dark nights and seeing things darkly. Although, like everyone else, he disliked the term confessional, he came to accept that his best work was autobiographical and depressed. As he wrote to Randall Jarrell, darkness honestly lived through is a place of wonder and life. So much comes from there. Lowell's exploration of personal pain, however, differed from Rothke's in growing out of and reflecting political relations. Lowell subverted the binary between public and private worlds, evoking the two realms as always already interconnected. Public events impact individual psyches, and individual psyches frame the way such events are processed and recalled. Lowell's poems of psychic privacy generally arose from the politics of the domestic or public sphere. Whereas in The Human Condition, 1958, Arendt had noted the gap between what she called the polis and the oikia in ancient Greece, that is, between the space of appearance, the political stage of, of the public sphere, and the shelter of the household. And whereas Foucault problematized binary spaces, such as the public and the private, by interposing an other space of heterotopia in his essay of other spaces, Lowell posited a complicated circumambient space that was at once public and private, thereby reconfiguring our geography of being in the world. Lowell wrote rather disingenuously, I think. In truth, I seem to have felt mostly the joys of living in remembering and recording, thanks to the gift of the muse, it is the pain. But Lowell, reflecting Freud's great essay, Negation, also said, only a few years later, in a letter to me, how we mean the opposite of what we first say, or habitually say. Kay Jameson's revealing new book, uh, which I recommend very strongly, Robert Lowell, Setting the River on Fire, makes clear the suffer that suffering makes clear the suffering that was a constant of his daily existence. That's uh, Kay Jameson, uh, 
very notable uh, psychologist uh, at uh, Johns Hopkins, the leading ex uh, authority on um, bipolar mood disorder. As Patrick Cosgrave wrote long ago, even in his lightest moments, he was forever in turmoil. I think it was just the reverse of what Lowell initially wrote. He experienced the pain of living and the joy of artistic creation. Lowell was briefly institutionalized in January 1976. In his poem, Home, <clears throat> composed that same month, an unidentified voice describes him as a King Lear-like figure, quote, seeing too much and feeling it, with one skin layer missing. I think it's really a good description. A few months later, he wrote to Elizabeth Bishop, one needs to hold a shield before one's feelings and the reader, conceiving a meter, which he sometimes used but more often did not, as such a shield. I think that his wonderful sense of humor was another such shield, perhaps a saving grace. In early 1976, June 1976, Lowell felt well enough to receive in person an honorary doctorate in literature from Trinity College, Dublin, uh, which uh, Stephen alluded to. At the ceremony, John V. Luce, a professor of classics and for many years the college's public orator, celebrated the power of Lowell's public poetry in words that must have made Lowell happy. Professor Luce said that Lowell made, quote, many savage onslaughts on cruelty, on greed, and on the barbarities of war, adding that the poet illuminated the darkling plain of our world with what I make bold to call the lightning flashes of genius. These were justified compliments. I think it's fair to say that Lowell excelled in portraying the psyche in pain, in showing that the political and personal pain are interwoven phenomena, and in intimating such survival strategies as humor, courageous speech, and active resistance. Two, the disabled psyche. Let's start at the beginning. With Lowell, here you see the beginning. With Lowell as a child, living amid the ever-present tensions of his dysfunctional upper-class family on Beacon Hill in Boston. The family consisted of his mother, Charlotte Winslow Lowell, controlling, exhausting, brilliant, and probably bipolar herself. His father, Robert Trail Spence Lowell III, remote, depressed, haunted by his failures. And young Lowell himself, Robert Trail Spence IV, an only child, difficult and unhappy even then. He doesn't look very happy there. Here they are in 1930 at the breakfast table. Lowell is 13 in the scene I'm going to uh, evoke. As we look in, young Lowell is 13 and being sent away that very day against his will to a posh boarding school called St. Mark's. The source is Lowell's unpublished childhood memoir, which Greg Kosk and I are now preparing for publication by Farrar, Strauss, and Durow in a volume of Lowell's memoirs. 
Lowell didn't ever title this memoir, but he informally always called it My Autobiography. It was intended to go through the high school years, through the prep school years, I should say, uh, but he stopped uh, at age 13. This is the second, this is from the second to last chapter. Mother, down for breakfast to give verve to the occasion of my leaving for prep school was like the youngest Napoleon writing dispatches on a drumhead before the Battle of Marengo. Her hand moved with decisive dramatic thrusts as she checked off items of clothing on a two-foot list. She said, what is Leglon, I mean your royal highness, thinking of? That's addressing her son. Mother talked on with a hard, hopeless bravado. It was maddening to be talking to a stone and stuck with a theme that ruled out humor and all her wonderfully good-natured and detailed exaggerations. Still, she had lived all summer on just this. Now what if the hot bath she had so lovingly drawn should, should turn out to be a rock pile? She wasn't so common and nouveau riche as to name, or even quite remember the exact figures. Still, anyone could see that this gross tuition was something in black and white, a cold, demonstrable proof of giving. Money talks. She might have said this if she had had more of it, and a less Puritan, less genteel conscience. What she so deeply felt was that only spiritual pain is deserving, and that if, despite her feeling, she had had oceans of just this, oh, nauseating oceans of spiritual pain, and all nearly impossible to exhibit to others, well, she deserved a vacation she could pay for. Ever since her marriage, she had been modeling a statue called I Am a Mother. If sending me off to boarding school was buying the pedestal ready-made, surely she had shown, shown genius in her choice. In all this vibrating torment, it was as though mother and I were battling down a list of statements and answers. Statement. Your father and I are paying a great deal to give you the advantage of St. Mark's. Answer. I only think what I ask for. Statement. Two thousand dollars. Answer. My allowance is 25 cents a week. <laughs> Statement. The return we expect is improved conduct. Answer. Love and admire what I already am. Statement. Most boys are unable to go to St. Mark's. Answer. That means I can't play with my friend Ernest. Statement. Your great-grandfather was headmaster of St. Mark's. Answer. I'm afraid to mention him there. Statement. He was a great man. Answer. Probably he was mean and couldn't keep order. Statement. We are giving you the best education. Answer. You mean blue serge suits seven days a week and music lessons. And so on. At the end of the list, Mother wrote, We are breathless. Someone must take over. I said, Eskimos fish every day in the year, of the year, except when they are hibernating. 
<laughs> Mother and I loved knocking our heads together until they bled. Worn, jumpy, <clears throat> exhilarated from such bloodletting, we could not live a day without it. My father drained his great cereal bowl of a coffee cup. Maxwell House, he said. Good, except for the last drop. <laughs> the son confusingly antagonizes the mother, yet identifies with her. The self-absorbed mother wants the best for her son, but also desperately wants him gone. The recessive father is out of it, hiding behind a meaningless joke about an advertising slogan for Maxwell House Coffee. When his mother died, Lowell wrote that her name had been misspelled Lovell on her coffin. Not literally true. This comment suggests that from his perspective, his mother's real name, and perhaps his family's real name, was not Lowell, but Lovellless. Lowell's mood disorder was probably already discernible in his perpetual childhood conflicts with his parents. As a young adult, he underwent recurrent and increasingly severe cycles of what he called enthusiasm and depression. These bipolar episodes intensified in his 30s and lasted throughout his life. In a typical cycle, he would start out feeling fine. Then he would sense that his mind was racing. In full-blown mania, Lowell might commence passionate affairs with newly met women or threaten violence against friends or strangers. <clears throat> he would fall under the grip of fantasies or hallucinations. For example, quote, Do you smell that? he asked. And when his friend Peter Taylor said he couldn't, told him that it was the smell of brimstone. Then he began looking around the room, trying to locate the devil. <laughs> At another point, in the grips of mania, he held his frail mentor, the poet Alan Tate, out a second-story window of an apartment building while reciting one of Tate's poems. He would inveigh against communists or, conversely, insist on Alger Hiss's innocence, barricade himself in his room, or wander streets all night, foam at the mouth, talk nonstop, and wind up in police custody, and then in a police room, in a hospital room, or padded cell. Following the death of his ambivalently loved mother in February 1954, maybe I'll just switch photos to Lowell about that time. Lowell suffered his worst manic attack yet, resulting in electroshock therapy in a Cincinnati hospital and then transference to a locked cell in New York's Payne Whitney Clinic. From then on, all his major manic attacks culminated in stays at psychiatric institutions. Sometimes McLean Hospital, just outside of Boston, the setting of Waking in the Blue. Initially, he was involuntarily committed, but then, as he gained understanding of his condition, he voluntarily admitted himself to the hospital. In the hospital, he would descend into quietude, remorse, and intense self-criticism. And then, often quickly, he would be fine again. For a while. Following his severe attack of 1954, 
He was encouraged by his therapist to write about his feelings and experiences. At this time, he wrote a prose memoir called The Balanced Aquarium about his experiences at Payne and Whitney. I will quote, uh, and he also wrote the childhood memoir that I quoted from before. He spent three years on those two um, texts, never published in his lifetime, except for 91 Revere Street, which comes from that uh, childhood memoir called My Autobiography. I'll quote a representative passage of the Balanced Aquarium here, in which Lowell attempts both to reveal and to heal through the art of saying what happened, which was initially, by the way, uh, uh, a phrase by second wife Elizabeth Hardwick, gets quoted again um, in virtually his last poem, Epilogue, um, reinforcing the notion that Hard, the Greg Kosk's notion that Hardwick stood for speech in his mind, and that he was perfectly willing to borrow her speech. The passage I'm, I'm going to read now from The Balanced Aquarium exposes a, a wish to humble himself, a gift for the resonant detail, and a sense of both humor and horror. When Mother died, I began to feel tireless, madly sanguine, menaced and menacing. I entered the Payne Whitney Clinic for all those afflicted in the mind. One night I sat in the mixed lounge and enjoyed a new calm which I had been acquiring with much cunning during the few days since my entrance. I remember coining and pondering for several minutes such phrases as the art of detachment, off-handed involvement, and urbanity, a key to the tactics of self-control. But the old menacing hilarity was growing in me. I saw Anna and her nurse enter into our lounge. Anna, a patient from the floor for more extreme cases, was visiting our floor for the evening. I knew that the evening would soon be over, that the visitor would probably not return to us, and that I had but a short time to make my impression on her. Anna towered over the piano and thundered snatches of Mozart sonatas, which she half remembered and murdered. Her, her figure, a Russian ballerina's, or Anna Karenina's, was emphasized and illuminated, as it were, by an embroidered Middle European blouse that fitted over her creaseless, burnished, curved tightness of a medieval breastplate. I throbbed to the music and the musician. I began to talk aimlessly and loudly to the room at large. I discussed the solution to a problem that had been bothering me about the unmanly smallness of the suits of armor that I had seen tilting at the Metropolitan Museum. Don't you see, I said and pointed to Anna, the armor was made for Amazons. But no one took up my lead. Roger, an Oberlin undergraduate and fellow patient, sat beside Anna on the, on the piano bench. He was small. His dark hair matched his black flannel Brooks Brothers suit. His blue-black eyes matched his blue-black necktie. He wore a light cashmere sweater that had been knitted for him by his mother, and his yellow woolen socks had been imported from the Shetlands. 
Roger talked to Anna with a persuasive shyness. Occasionally, he would stand up and play little beginner's pieces for her. He explained that these pieces were taken from an exercise book composed by Bella Bartok in protest against the usual unintelligibly tasteless examples used by teachers. Anna giggled with incredulous admiration as Roger insisted that the clinic's music instructor could easily teach her to read more skillfully. Suddenly, I felt compelled to make a derisive joke. And I announced cryptically and untruly that Rubenstein had declared the eye was, of course, the source of all evil for a virtuoso. I said, if the eye offend thee, pluck it out. No one understood my humor. I grew red and confused. The air in the room began to tighten around me. I felt as if I were squinting on the bottom of a huge laboratory bottle and trying to push out the black rubber stopper before I stifled. Roger sat like a rubber stopper in his black suit. Suddenly I knew I could clear the air by taking hold of Roger, Roger's ankles and pulling him off the chair. By some crisscross of logic, I reasoned that my cruel boorishness would be an act of self-sacrifice. I would be bowing out of the picture and throwing Roger into the arms of Anna. Without warning, but without lowering my eyes from Anna's splendid breastplate blouse, I seized Roger's yellow ankles. I pulled. Roger sat on the floor with tears in his eyes. A sigh of surprised repulsion went round the room. I assumed a hurt fatherly expression, but all at once I felt eased and sympathetic with everyone. Lowell was immediately transferred to a new floor for more seriously disturbed patients. <laughs> Deprived of his belt, his pajama cord, and matches, he was heavily sedated with chlorpromazine and encouraged to watch Liberace and baseball on TV. <laughs> a very interesting pair of alternative gender models. <laughs> his blood became like melted lead. He could hardly swallow his breakfast. He sat gaping through Scrabble games, unable to form the simplest word. He had to be prompted by a nurse, and even then he couldn't make any sense of the words. Reaching a low point, Lowell returned to his room and wound the window open to its maximum six inches. Quote, Below me, patients circled in twos over the bright gray octagonal, antagonal, octagonal paving stones of the courtyard. I let my glasses drop. How freely they glittered through the air for almost a minute. They shattered on the stones. Then everyone in the courtyard came crowding and thrusting their heads forward over the glasses, as though I had been scattering corn for pigeons. I felt my languor lift and then descend again. I already seemed to weigh a thousand pounds because of my drug, and now I blundered about nearly blind from myopia. But my nervous system vibrated joyfully when I felt the cool air brushing directly on my eyeballs, and I was reborn each time I saw my blurred, now unspectacled, now unprofessorial face in the mirror. Yet all this time, I would catch myself asking whining questions. 
Why don't I die? Die. I quizzed my face of suicide in the mirror, but the body's warm, unawed breath befogged the face with dilatory inertia. In this set of passages, Lowell has bounced between slapstick comedy and suicidal cognition. His memories are like a Jamesian sponge. He squeezes one, and it exudes images, characters, and figures of speech. Writer's block had been a problem in this period, five messy poems in five years, and personal memory was the solution. Lowell wrote three significant autobiographical works in the mid-50s, his memoir of psychosis and recovery, The Balanced Aquarium, his memoir of childhood, My Autobiography, and then his poetic sequence, Life Studies. All three evoke his dark nights of the soul and psyche. All three end with images of hope for healing. All three balance Rothke's uncanny introspection with Arendt's redemptive vision of a lively world. In the balanced aquarium, Anna and Roger are to some extent self-images of psychic disturbance, glimpsed in what George Lensing once termed Lowell's associative mirror. But they are also, crucially, autonomous others, with looks and issues different from his own. The, cl the clinic's patients or inmates, together with the medical staff, form a functioning community, an oppositional one, one that Lowell ultimately finds more satisfying than either his biological family or the conformist, consumerist society outside the hospital's borders. Lowell tells us that as he was being released from the hospital, his fellow patients, now friends, asked him how it felt. I answered that I was pleased, but that, of course, it hurt. There is a distinct line leading from the marginalized alternative community at Payne Whitney to Lowell's increasing political engagements and his more reasoned acts of resistance of the 1960s, and from the psycholo such psychological texts as The Balanced Aquarium, Waking in the Blue, and Skunk Hour, to such political ones as For the Indian Dead, Benito Serino, Waking Early Sunday Morning, and the March. Three, political engagements. As a prep school student, Lowell nursed imperialistic and proto-fascist sentiments that were not necessarily out of place in his socially privileged milieu. By the 1940s, his politics had deepened into a complex formula of sensitivity and callousness, empathy and anger. Jerome Mazzaro refers to this mindset as Lowell's early politics of apocalypse, and Randall Jarrell famously called it a conflict of opposites. In mania, his sympathies remained with the right often, as indicated by his recurrent fascination with Mein Kampf and his successful witch hunt in 1948 against the apolitical, universally beloved director of the Addo Writers' Colony, Elizabeth Ames, whose career he destroyed. But in his more typical moments, he had become by 1952 a thoughtful consensus liberal, 
a supporter of Adlai Stevenson, as we sense in Inauguration Day, and a supporter of the Civil Rights Movement, as we see in For the Union Dead. In 1965, however, his politics changed. He migrated even further to the left. He became ever more critical of American capitalism, militarism, and imperialism. And he began to complement thoughtful critique with active engagement. For the first time since he had challenged President Roosevelt's conduct of World War II in 1943, his intervention in 1965 was both ethical and political. In what follows, I assume that James Scully is right in claiming that poetry is inherently gendered, raced, and nationed. I want to look specifically at Lowell's enmeshment with political events of the mid to late 1960s, a period notable for his lack of hospitalization. Uh, you could connect his lack of hospitalization to his use of uh, lithium, which is he was uh, an early uh, user, early adopter, and is still the drug of choice for uh, mood disorder. So he, you know, by the 60s, he was on the proper medication. Uh, but you can also uh, connect it to his active political engagement uh, that may have helped his mood control. I believe that Lowell mitigated his psychic disturbance through his political agency, and that along with many other poets, he helped make the 1960s a golden age for poetry's involvement in the public sphere. Um, why don't I give us a shot of... There he is. Lowell on the campaign trail. Hard to really believe. <coughs> Lowell once told an interviewer, when your private experience converges on the nation's experience, you, have, you feel you have to do something. In spring 1965, Lowell, like many others, became aware of the nation's push toward war in Southeast Asia. When Lyndon Johnson was inaugurated for his full term in January of that year, the U.S. had only 20,000 military advisors in Vietnam, and none of them were combat soldiers. Responding to deteriorating military conditions, Johnson sent 3,500 Marines to South Vietnam in March 1965. He authorized additional U.S. troops in April, May, June, and July uh, of 1965, raising the total to almost 100,000 troops. Uh, the war had escalated. Scenes of civilian casualties appeared on the evening news. Public protests began to occur. In April and June of 1965, Senator William Fulbright made major statements opposing the war. Lowell described his complicated political position thusly. I was never, I think, anti-communist, but I was, and still am, anti-Stalinist. I suppose if I'd been called up for the Korean draft, I would have been a conscientious objector. A helpless, inconsistent position. But I have never gotten over the horrors of American bombing in World War II. For me, anti-Stalinism led logically, oh, perhaps not so logically, to my being against our suppression of the Vietnamese. 
In the midst of this escalation, in May 1965, Lowell received an invitation to recite his poetry at a White House Festival of the Arts. He had been to the White House once before, invited to dinner by John F. Kennedy, and though he had enjoyed the occasion, he had felt qualms afterwards. The next morning you read that the Seventh Fleet had been sent somewhere in Asia, and you had a funny feeling of how unimportant the artist really was. Lowell first accepted Johnson's invitation to his Festival of the Arts, then reconsidered and refused. His refusal was reprinted on the front page of the New York Times and became a cause celebre. Laura Bush's failed White House poetry reading in 2003, uh, I don't know if you remember that, was but a weak echo of what occurred in 1965. Poetry invitations first came from the president in 1965, then from the first spouse in 2003, and now undoubtedly not at all. <laughs> Even if they did come, no American poet today has the authority of Robert Lowell, which allowed him access to the front page of the nation's leading newspaper and permitted him to generate a national debate. Lowell wrote to Johnson that he was following our present foreign policy with the greatest dismay and distrust, adding that we are in danger of imperceptibly becoming an explosive and suddenly chauvinistic nation. Public endorsements followed by Hannah Arendt, John Berryman, Stanley Kunitz, Philip Roth, W.D. Snodgrass, and Robert Penn Warren, among many other writers and visual artists. When President Johnson learned of Lowell's refusal, according to one person who was there, the roar in the Oval Office could be heard all the way into the East Wing. <laughs> Johnson became convinced that poets and intellectuals were not only sons of a bitch, they were fools and they were close to traitors. Poets and intellectuals played the role then that the media are playing today, another sign of how out of it poets and intellectuals now are. Lowell wrote Waking Early Sunday Morning in direct response to the incident, including President Johnson and his staff as characters, and ending with a prophetic lament, which continues to echo today, and I'm sure it's familiar to most of you. Pity the planet, all joy gone from this sweet volcanic cone. Peace to our children when they fall in small war on the heels of small war until the end of time. To police the earth, a ghost for orbiting, forever lost in our monotonous sublime. Between 1965 and 1968, Lowell participated in anti-war readings, published political letters and statements, signed petitions, and contributed to political symposia. He introduced the Russian poet Andrei Vozhnezensky at a reading by saying, this is indiscreet. Both of our countries, I think, have really terrible governments. <laughs> he proposed a national day of mourning for our own soldiers, for the pro-American Vietnamese, and for the anti-American Vietnamese. In 1967, Lowell participated in the 100,000-person march on the Pentagon, along with Denise Levertov and other writers. He famously fled before an advancing phalanx of police, 
whereas Norman Mailer stood his ground and was arrested. Lowell then became a main character in Mailer's account of the event, The Armies of the Night, just as Mailer became the title character of Lowell's sonnet, Norman Mailer. <laughs> you have to make use of your experience, but really Mailer's book in particular is really great. In his book, Mailer evokes Lowell as the anguished poet of conscience, speaking in a fine, stammering voice that gave the impression that life rushed at him in a series of hurdles, and some he succeeded in jumping, and some he did not. Lowell is also a man of fascinating contradictions, a celebrity, or as Mailer would say, a notable. <clears throat> not quite on the fantasy level of Marilyn Monroe, the greatest of the notables, but worth contemplating as a different American stereotype, uh, archetype, or stereotype, the poet as Puritan. Mailer observes that Lowell had something all had something untouchable, all insane in its force. One felt immediately that there were any number of causes for which the man would be ready to die, and some he would fight. Complementing the mania is a quality of holy introspection. Lowell gave off at times the unwilling, haunted saintliness of a man who was repaying the moral debts of ten generations of ancestors. It was precisely this kind of mythic persona that made Lowell a powerful cultural figure. In Mailer's account, the earth seemed to tremble when Lowell walked. Lowell went on to publish two sonnets in Notebook 1967-68 concerning the March on the Pentagon. The poems join Mailer's account as one of the sources of contemporary memory of this event, along with Ginsburg's poem, Pentagon Exorcism, which was recited at the march, even though Ginsburg himself was in Italy visiting Ezra Pound. First things first. <laughs> Lowell wrote additional sonnets on such political topics as Che Guevara, South American politics, student protests, trial of Dr. Spock, the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy, and the presidential election of 1968. His poems on Eugene McCarthy and Robert Kennedy in particular exemplify his political poetics. Lowell originally met McCarthy when he accompanied Elizabeth Hardwick on an interview for an article she was writing about anti-war senators. Lowell and McCarthy immediately felt what Lowell called a temperamental affinity. They talked and told stories. Lowell's first meeting with Robert Kennedy was edgier. Jacqueline Kennedy introduced them, and each seems immediately to have gotten on the other's nerves. Lowell began to read some passages from The Education of Henry Adams, <coughs> God knows why, <laughs> to Kennedy. According to one observer, Bob Lee suddenly got up and excused himself. Lowell followed him right to the door of the bathroom, still reading. <laughs> Bobby shut the door and said, if you don't mind. Lowell said, if you were Louis XIV, you wouldn't mind. <laughs> What a strange comment. <laughs> like something out of the balanced aquarium. Did Lowell think of Robert Kennedy as the Sun King? During the 1968 presidential campaign, 
Lowell took to the New Republic to endorse Eugene McCarthy. It, he was enough of a political figure for the, his boxed endorsement to matter, not simply to poetry readers, but to the entire left. Seeking to guide the undecided, Lowell began, quote, of the announcer seriously offered Democratic or Republican candidates, only Senators Kennedy and McCarthy seem morally or intellectually allowable. This assertion ruled out Nixon, of course, but it also eliminated Hubert Humphrey, the eventual Democratic nominee. Lowell continued, of these, McCarthy is preferable, first for his negative qualities, lack of excessive charisma, driving ambition, machine-like drive, and the true great wish to be president. These were implicit critiques of Kennedy, quite odd, I think. Lowell accuses Kennedy of charisma, drive, and ambition. These are Lowell's own qualities. More importantly, they are all essential for electoral success and effective governance. In effect, Lowell sides against Kennedy because Kennedy had the better chance of winning and of governing effectively. Lowell concludes by heaping praise on McCarthy, but I am for him most for what he possesses, his variable, tolerant, and courageous mind, lungs that breathe the air. When the race against President Johnson was hopeless and intractable, he alone hoped, entered, and won. Basically, Lowell is saying that if he read The Education of Henry Adams to McCarthy, he would listen. In a way, he's not endorsing McCarthy for the presidency, but for the Academy of American Poets. He's pushing the left away from power and toward moral gesture. As he later admitted, it didn't strike me that McCarthy would be president. Lowell became McCarthy's traveling companion during the primaries, before actively campaigning, Lowell had been divided in his judgment, saying of Kennedy, I know him fairly well, and he's a lot better than he seems to a lot of people. But campaigning with McCarthy in Oregon, he employed what he called invective. In one almost crazy speech to the crowd, he claimed that underneath Kennedy's charisma suit was an anti-charisma bobby suit made of steel wool. <laughs> that leaves metal threads in the rash admirer for months. <laughs> he added that a fire that had consumed a Portland tire factory that day had been started by Kennedy. <laughs> a joking comment that was hard to distinguish, to distinguish as a joke. The speech did McCarthy no harm, and he won Oregon by six points. Nevertheless, in the decisive California primary a week later, Lowell did do McCarthy serious injury. According to Lowell, McCarthy wanted to get away from the hail and brimstone of the campaign and talk and relax and talk seriously. So he talked to Lowell instead of to his political advisors. The staff called Lowell one of the astrologers whom they had to circumvent in order to even get to their candidate. On the day of the primary's only televised debate, Lowell took it upon himself to visit Bobby Kennedy in his hotel room. He wanted to harmonize the two anti-war campaigns after the primary was over. Not a bad idea in itself. Kennedy told Lowell that McCarthy should simply withdraw now. Lowell said, you mustn't talk to me this way. Kennedy, well, I guess we have nothing more to say. 
Low. I wish I could think up some joke that would cheer you, but it won't do any good. After that diplomatic foray, Lowell made his way back to McCarthy. A McCarthy staffer, Andreas Teuber, recalled, We tried to keep Robert Lowell from McCarthy at very crucial times because we thought he always took the edge off. Every time Lowell and McCarthy would get together, Lowell, or so we thought, would convince McCarthy that really he was above all this. So the campaign hid McCarthy in an unregistered room, attempting to brief him on likely debate questions. But Lowell found him, and the two men started to drink. They got into a limousine together to go to the television studio. First, they demanded a detour to see Alcatraz. Then they composed a 20th century version of Ode to St. Cecilia's Day <laughs> in the back seat. By the time they arrived at the studio, McCarthy was, as his staff had feared, Shakespearean, distant, like Henry V at Agincourt. A distracted McCarthy lost the debate, and as a result, he lost the election by four percentage points. Kennedy was assassinated at his victory celebration on election night. Lowell pretty clearly revised his complicated feelings toward both men by the time he composed his sonnets to them. The sonnet to McCarthy begins, I love you so. Gone? Who will swear you wouldn't have done good to the country? That fulfillment wouldn't have been good for you. The father, as Freud says, you. This is pretty equivocal, especially with two line endings of wouldn't. The lines imply that you can't prove McCarthy would have been a bad president, but you could sure suspect it. They suggest that McCarthy functioned as a father figure for Lowell, a good father, in contrast to Lyndon Johnson's bad father. At the end, Lowell describes the candidate as, quote, coldly willing to smash the ball past those who bought the part. McCarthy is not as tolerant here as he was in the New Republic endorsement. In fact, he seems to possess the machine-like drive that Lowell previously ascribed to Kennedy. Perhaps he has become Lowell's powerful mother here. In contrast, the three sonnets for Robert Kennedy frame him as a tragic hero, a very different figure from the one who appeared in Lowell's campaign invective. In the first and best, called RFK in Notebook 67-68, and for Robert Kennedy, 1925-1968, in Collected Poems, the poet laments, Here, in my workroom, in its listlessness of vacancy, is loneliness. Lowell portrays Kennedy as neither a tyrant nor a father, but as a missing friend. The poem concludes, I miss you, you out of Plutarch, made by hand, forever approaching your maturity. The line breaks at miss, to emphasize that word, and the next line begins, you, you, as if to keen for the lost beloved. I miss you, you out of Plutarch, made by hand. Kennedy is not machine-like now, but the opposite, 
a character made of words, or an artwork made by hand, with a Benjaminian aura of unreproducibility. Forever approaching his maturity, Kennedy is an object of admiration and desire, forever young, frozen in time, like the figures on Keats's Grecian urn. Perhaps he's an object of identification, a portrait of the artist as a still young man. Lowell's adventures in the public sphere suggest that political engagement was a vital feature of mid-century poetry, that poets were invited to be more culturally prominent than they are today, and that the results could be complicated. Lowell was better at writing than he was at anything else, except perhaps being a parent. His letter to President Johnson, his anti-war poems, and especially his memorial sonnet to Robert Kennedy were powerful in their day and remain so in ours. They made things happen. Circulating through the world culture, these works helped shape awareness of the social basis of poetry and the potential of poetry to clarify, unsettle, and change things, even or especially in dark times. Lowell's texts and acts resisted the dream of an apolitical poetry. They displayed all of the political mess that we live with every day and that poetry must live with as well. Four, the dying of the light. In his final years, That one or that one? In his final years, Lowell looked back on his achievement with some pride. Years before, in an unpublished essay on Sylvia Plath, composed in the mid-1960s, he expressed doubts about his own work. Sometimes, after reading these poems, I have wanted to give up writing. The terrible audacity, rightness, and ease of their inspiration make most other poems sound like birthday odes to George I. But in, after enjoying six or seven essays on me, published in spring 1977, mere months before his death, Lowell had come to terms with the limitations and accomplishments of his very political, very personal life's work. He began with the political. Politics? We live in the sunset of capitalism. We have thundered nobly against its bad record all our years. Yet we cling to its vestiges, not just out of greed and nostalgia, but for our intelligible survival. Is this what makes our art so contradictory, muddled, and troubled? Then he turned to the personal. Looking over my selected poems, about 30 years of writing, my impression is that the thread that strings it together is my autobiography. My journey is always stumbling on the unforeseen and even unforeseeable. He concluded, I pray that my progress has been more than recoiling with satiation and disgust from one style to another, a series of rebuffs. I hope that there has been increase of beauty, wisdom, tragedy, and all the blessings of this consuming chance. The poet who excelled in evoking dark nights and in seeing things darkly pauses at the end to pray that his writing has increased all the blessings of the world. As we 
proceed through our own times of trouble, I do think that his beautiful, tragic texts will continue to be a blessing to us. Thank you.